Hey leaders, it's Carrie here with a special announcement before we get into today's show. A lot of you are looking for podcasts to listen to. There's 3 million out there and our team has just launched something brand new called the Art of Leadership Network. It is a network of podcasters and includes world-class leaders dedicated to helping you live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow in your business and in your life. If you like this podcast, we think you are going to like the others in the network. But it's got a variety. You're going to hear from top leaders on culture, entrepreneurship, executive leadership, organizational culture, nonprofit leadership, church trends, leader resources, influencers, and even healthy living. And uh, well, it'll keep growing too. Our podcasters in the Art of Leadership Network now include Chris Cook, Jenny Catron, Brad Lominick, Jeff Henderson, Shane Benson, David Farmer, Kevin Jennings, our friends at Exponential, and Sean Morgan. And you're probably saying, great, how do I find these? Well, we got one easy spot. Go to theartofleadershipnetwork.com and that's a landing page for all of the shows inside our brand new network. Or of course, you can just search The Art of Leadership Network inside whatever podcast app you're listening to. We will have a whole lot more on The Art of Leadership coming up, but we're kicking it off with this podcast network. Yeah, there's a lot more behind The Art of Leadership. Uh, We've been working on it for a long, long time. Hope you enjoy these shows as much as we do. And now to today's episode. The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I'm very excited to have Michael Bungay Stanier here today. He was a new name to me, even though he wrote what has been called the coaching book of the millennium um, a few years ago and uh, lives just down the road from me. So mutual friends introduced us. I got to know him and we had a fantastic conversation. And this is really relevant to leaders. If you've ever needed to tame your advice monster and tried to coach the best out of your team, and want to get things done, you're going to love today's episode. And it's brought to you by Belay. You can get their free resource, Three Tips for Setting Personal Goals as a Busy Leader, by texting Carrie to 55123 and by ProMedia Fire. Book your free social media management consultation today by going to promediafire.com slash growth. So uh, we are going to talk about the advice monster. It's really interesting. I found this a very refreshing interview and conversation Uh, But I also know I tend to give advice and uh, I learned sort of as a dad that maybe it's better to ask questions and uh, well, Michael and I get into that in a lot of detail. Also, uh, what I think it was Seth Godin called it the best coaching advice of the century. And uh, so you're going to hear some of that. Michael's going to share that with you. And then how to turn intention into action. There's no video for this. We do a lot of our shows on YouTube. That's because I just drove down an hour south of where I live into uh, Toronto and we recorded this in person and I didn't bring a camera crew because we were still in some form of lockdown, I think, when we recorded this. If you don't know Michael, some of you will. Michael Bungay Stanier is the author of six books. Uh, Between them, they have sold more than a million copies. He's best known for The Coaching Habit, the best-selling coaching book of the century and already recognized as a classic. His new book, How to Begin, is so good. It helps people be more ambitious for themselves and for the world. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar. We're going to get into that. Also plays the ukulele badly, he says. He's an Australian. 
and lives in Toronto, Canada. And you can learn more at mbs.works. That's mbs.works. Imagine uh, waking up wowed by the beautiful content you see on your social media platforms all week long and on Instagram, Facebook stories. It's just filled with excitement. Custom graphics and animation can stop the scroll in 2022. And the best part is it can be all done for you by the Pro Media Fire team. The process, super simple, brand discovery. Then they confirm Pro Media Fire knows your brand and then a handoff done for you social media management. And that is how you wake up wowed by your own social media feed done for you in three easy steps. You can save time, grow online, and be proud of your brand without really doing the work. So let the pros handle everything. You can book your free social media management consultation today by going to promediafire.com growth. That's promediafire.com growth. I also want to talk about our goals in the new year. New year, you know, we're not that far into it, rings in new opportunities and brings with it every bit of baggage from the year prior, right? You bring yourself into your new year, including all of those administrative tasks you hope would disappear. It's time to get intentional, intentional with your time, with your talent, with your God-given purpose. And it's also time to delegate. So with help from our friends at Belay, Let this be the year you stop juggling tasks that aren't the best use of your time and instead delegate them to someone from whom they are. Whether you need a virtual assistant, a bookkeeper, or a website specialist, Belay has the right person ready to help you back your growing business. All of their specialists are highly vetted, U.S.-based, and dedicated to your exact business needs to help you get started. Belay is offering their free resource, three tips for setting personal goals as a busy leader, and they're offering it today to all of my podcast listeners. Let this be the year you reignite your big dreams and goals because you're already into it. And to get your free copy of their resource, three tips for setting personal goals as a busy leader, just text Carrie to 55123. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. And now my conversation with Michael Bungay Stanier. Okay, so Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. It's good. We're hanging out with Drake in Toronto. Exactly. I'm wearing all sorts of gold chains and I've got a mm-hmm. red haircut. It's fantastic. An incredible haircut. <laughs> and uh, apparently this is the building Drake had his first studio in. That's right. Why? Yeah. So there you go. It, this is a kind of up and coming part of, of Toronto, Sterling Road. And this this office block that we're in was kind of pretty run down, but now it's become this kind of little hub of interesting offices. Well, you're you're just near Little Portugal, That's which right. is a pretty up and coming area of the city, right? Exactly. Not to mention Portuguese tarts, which are the both the temptation of my life. I'm like, <laughs> when I was in Lisbon, I'm like, okay. I've been a week in Lisbon and I'm 10 pounds heavier when I come back and I can put that down entirely to Portuguese custard tart. So for that reason alone, I have to kind of avoid going to Lisbon, <laughs> Portugal too often. Uh, but it's great. Thanks for hosting us. And uh, of course, my mics failed while <laughs> we were on the road, but we've made it work. With as long as this mic doesn't fail. Right, exactly. <laughs> we have our voice, right? So um, really interesting getting a little bit of background on leaders. And um, we're going to talk a lot about coaching. We're going to talk about getting started. So, but I want to, I want to get a little bit of your background because we're leaders who operate in a similar space. It was an hour and a half to get down here from my house. And we only met thanks to a mutual friend. I know. Although I, I've been stalking you for a while, Uh-oh. so Uh-oh. I think I know I, I may have known you because you are interesting and we are in the same sort of space. 
But it is interesting that it's like, you know, I've been doing this work for 20 years. You've probably been doing it for a, about a decade yeah. as part of exactly. this. Exactly. So yeah. um, sometimes you run into people and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Well, I'm well, delighted. We have to thank the Bob. <laughs> yeah. Bobby Herrera. Yeah, yeah. Previous guest. Thank you so much, Bobby. Yeah. Um, so I want to pick a subject. Yeah. Uh, you can do all three briefly <laughs> or the balloon incident. Yeah. Being sued by one of your law professors. Yeah. Or being a hippie while enrolled as a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. So you you pick. Well, the first two sound probably a bit more interesting than they actually are because you know <laughs> they're like when I when I share my resume, I go, yeah, I was banned from my high school graduation for the balloon incident. I left law school being sued by a law lecturer for defamation. Um, the defamation one was interesting. You know, it was it was a a moment of understanding how power works in a way that I hadn't fully understood before. So this uh, law school lecturer was teaching a course on evidence, and he used as an example of, of the, the facts of the case a woman being raped. Mm. And it didn't need to be a woman being raped. It wasn't a necess necess necessary for the point of law to have that factual example. And it, it was, I mean, this was 30 years ago, so um, uh, kind of before people were probably a little more aware and a little more sensitive on right. it. But there was a group of us that were upset by that. And I have a penchant for throwing myself on landmines. And so <laughs> I, you know, I talked about it and it was me and mostly women who were in there and they're like, it'd be good if you were the, the voice of this. So it's the, like, spokesperson. the spokesperson. Yeah. And so we got into a class and I stood up and, and complained and he, you know, in retrospect, not the best way of setting up a confrontation. But then a group of us wrote a letter to the dean of the law school saying we'd like this not to happen. And the uh, the professor decided that that letter was an act of defamation. So he sued us. Oh, my goodness. Um, and uh, and it put the law school in a bit of a quandary because I just won a Rhodes Scholarship. So I was kind of there. Golden boy. So they just spent a, you know, a month going, well, we love Michael. Michael's a wonderful person. Look how wonderful he is. And now I'm being sued and they didn't know what to do. So we had to get on. This is my last year at law school. So it's you know, a relative pressure, but we had to get together lawyers and try to find people to defend us and raise money. And, um, and then basically I went overseas to study at Oxford. And a year later, he just dropped the suit. So he managed to kind of defray defray the the crisis we all scattered because we'd all graduated and gone our different ways the law school did nothing to intervene in this because they i guess were out of their depth and the university was a bit too as were we um and uh, you know it was interesting i'm sitting in this you know brideshead revisited pot common room in in oxford reading the times newspaper <laughs> right and there's a little there's a little article about me being sued <laughs> in the Times. Make the Times newspaper. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to make the Times newspaper, but somehow I somehow I had. So it was interesting that this is how, you know, when I started doing law, I had a, a fairly naive understanding of it's all about justice and you know finding what's right. Now um, and certainly then was kind of my first understanding about how law gets used as a way of. It uh, kind of making power happen and making mm. stuff that you don't want to go away. If you have privilege, you can use power like that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that was an early lesson. For those who may not know, what what is a Rhodes Scholar? Yeah. It's um. So it's a scholarship that was set up by a guy called Cecil Rhodes, after whom Rhodesia was named oh. uh, before it became Zimbabwe. Yeah. He made a bazillion dollars 
mining, you know, diamonds for De Beers. And um, his legacy is setting up the scholarship, which is, um, it's it's a well-regarded scholarship. And yes. you kind of have to, they're, they're looking for people who are well-rounded. So you have to be smart. You have to have a contributed to society. You have to be sporting. I mean, honestly, when you read the original will, it sounds a bit like a Tinder date because Cecil Rhodes was a closeted gay man. And he's like, I'm looking for young men who have you know, strong legs and manly thighs. And I'm like, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, nowadays the scholarship is much broader than that. It's women and men in all different countries, and it's a much more diverse representation. But it's, uh, you know, assorted famous people and world leaders were Rhodes Scholars like Bill Clinton most famously and Benjamin Bhutto and um Cory Booker who ran for the oh, yeah. Acts. He he were he was in the same class as I was. Um uh the guy who was the governor of Louisiana, um Bobby Jindal, he was in my class as a no Rhodes way. Scholar. So there's a yeah. there's a degree to which particularly Americans, if you win a Rhodes Scholarship, it's often seen as a road to a road to power, road to success. And I've seen I've seen your picture. <laughs> and so you're basically a hippie. I am basically a hippie. The yeah. hippie at Oxford. I hadn't quite really appreciated it was like come and do the, the roads photograph. And I hadn't because I'm not that good at details. I, I probably hadn't <laughs> read the line that said dress up in your nice clothes. So I sewed my own clothes at the time. So I show up and I'm wearing this kind of I mean kind of baggy trousers and slightly ragged thing. I have long hair and multiple earrings and a little peace sign around my neck. And I'm next to all these tall, straight, hunking Americans and blue suits and white shirts and red ties and I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm a counterbalanced stuff. <laughs> what was the balloon incident? I got it, got it. Sure. So um this is at high school and uh it, it was my last year at high school coincided with the headmaster's last year after a storied 40-year career as headmaster. And the graduating class the year before had basically trashed the place on their last day. They kind of, they put glue in the, all the locks. They brought in sheep. <laughs> in the sheep. quadrangle, so they oh, had a oh sheep grazing. Uh -huh. They wrote rude language in weed killer on some of the fields. So basically, they caused a whole lot of kind of damage. And we got told pretty firmly as a class that we know shenanigans in your, in your final year. I was like, come on, you know. So I came up with this idea of a very benign <laughs> prank. Um, so I went to a, an Anglican school and we had a chapel which was round with a conical roof. Uh -huh. um, so my very mild prank was to sneak in with a bunch of guys at six o'clock in the morning and just fill the cone conical roof with a bunch of helium balloons. I mean, fair game. Yeah, you're not endangering life. Nobody's endangered. Nothing's damaged. It's just a few balloons in a chapel. But anyway, there was an, I would call it an overreaction. So <laughs> myself and you know four or five other kids, all of whom were kind of leaders in the school, you know, or prefects and whatever, we all got banned from the high school graduation, <laughs> which felt outrageous at the time. But it makes for a really good story now. <laughs> well, and and of course that predicts that you would go on to sell over a million books and uh, exactly. be a sought after consultant and uh, exactly. hang out with Brene Brown <laughs> and Seth Godin and Jacqueline right. Novogratz. Right. So exactly. very linear career path. Yeah, you know, there's a great quote which is, "Your inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense." And I love that <laughs> because 
most of us get to a certain point where like, how did I arrive here exactly? Right. I mean, you, you've got a similarly interesting uh, weaving story, right? You're like, you went to law school as well, yep. seminary, and now you're, you're also best-selling author and leadership consultant and the like. And there is a moment where you go, wait, how did I get here? Oh, yeah. Again? All the time. But there's also a way that if you look back, there's a way you see how all of those things shape you in certain ways. You know, like I can point to a way that wanting to do those balloons in the chapel it's like, you know, I'm always I'm always looking to buck against authority in mm. a way. I'm always a bit suspicious of it. I don't wanna I don't wanna raise it to the ground, but I wanna poke fun at it. Sure. And you know, the coaching habit book, you know, it's it's a it's seven practical questions to help people right. be more coach like. But for me, under the covers there's a political message, which is like the act of coaching is the act of empowerment. Because when you ask a question, you're actually saying to the other person, you take this. This is your thing to figure out. When you're giving advice, you're like, I'm the authority. I right. have the answer. Right. Let me tell you what to do. I have high status. You have low status. When you ask a question, you actually put yourself in a place of not knowing and you give them the power. It's, it's, it's a subtle transfer and disruption of, of hierarchy. And I'm like, I like that. Hmm. So for me, coaching is... is um, it's about trying to um, help people be more human in the work that they do. That's kind of at the heart of a lot of what I think about. And part of that is going, how do you try and disrupt some of the hierarchies and the way that power works? Um, and I can look back and, you know, everything from being sued by the law school lecturer to all sorts of other ways where I stumbled around like this. You know, I get in trouble a little less often now i've got a little bit better about how i think about it but um i can see some of those early seeds being planted isn't that interesting um because yeah i can see that too and by the way we'll link to this in the show notes but your Brene brown interview where at the end she says okay let's do a role play <laughs> except it wasn't a role play no she went to you with a real problem yeah and all you did was ask questions you didn't give her any advice and I mean, I listen to my podcast at 1.5 speed. Yeah. So I'm listening to it. And the questions were so simple, but so profound. Yeah. And at points I thought, oh, the podcast shut off. Because <laughs> she must have paused for like 30 seconds. Oh, oh what? it felt like more like three and a half weeks. <laughs> because because she, she hadn't told me what the podcast was about. And she hadn't right. told me that she wanted me to coach her. So I wasn't prepared for this, really. So... I mean, I prepared for it all my life, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know it was coming, so I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I asked this question, and there's this silence, and this silence, and this silence. And, you know, part of what experience tells you is, look, even though you can feel the anxiety, hold the silence, because they're, they're, it, it's something significant is happening. Yeah. And, you know, it was wonderful for her to to role model what it means to really think about an answer because she could have been glib and kind of a bit polished about that but she really or, or given you a fake problem or a past problem. problem exactly yeah you really see in that little bit of coaching that she kind of drops down a level or two into what's really going on for her what's the real hard thing for her yeah. and it was it was exciting to do it so you do keep interesting company these days <laughs> i mean you uh, worked on a big project with seth godin yeah. Um, you do hang out with Brene a little bit and, yeah. and Jacqueline Novogratz. How, um, what are the bonds or the values or the endeavors that cement friendships like that? 
you know, one way of thinking about it is like this. You know, there are times I go to dinner parties, not that often in the last two years. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I remember those. Exactly. I remember those. And sometimes you sit next to people and you have a conversation with them in an evening with them and you think to yourself, they're perfectly pleasant and I never really need to talk to them again. You know, like... <laughs> They probably think they had a better time than they did because I'm really good at asking questions and being interested, and I and I am interested. But but what I hope for is sitting next to somebody where I'm like, oh my goodness, you are, you are, you are really interesting. You're fighting the world's fight. You know, you're you're dreaming of big things. You're you think in a way that provokes me and makes me think differently. So, you know, having the chance to work with somebody like. Seth, who, you know, he's such a, uh, uh, such a good sense of who he is and a fearlessness to how, what he brings to the world. Or with Brene, where I just admire that balance she strikes between ambition and groundedness. Like, she has big plans, and she is ruthlessly implementing them. You know, everything from getting a Netflix special to yeah. scaling this to scaling that, or, you know, getting a Spotify deal. None of that's accidental. She's working that plan. But at the same time, she has a sense that, you know, she hasn't become a caricature of Brene Brown, and that would be a very easy thing to do. So I admire this capacity of these people who – take them take their work seriously and don't take themselves seriously mm. who have a fearlessness and a sense of cleaving to um a, a purpose and a, and a full expression of who they are you know i feel like you, you see them continually show up as the best version of themselves and it's very impressive well another theme you know tracing this back you and i are similar age similar yeah. vintage i think but looking back at the last 30 years you know being a disruptor in law school and i yeah. went just down the road at osgood so you yeah. know that's a hotbed of political ideas <laughs> right. that will be out there in the culture 20 years yeah. hence and but you really look at what's happened to power over the last 20 30 years mm -hmm. it's become much more like it is consolidated in certain, you know, nations and states and yeah. economies and global elite, et cetera. But it's also very much more decentralized. It's right. a much more disrupted world. Right, right. So someone like Brene, who would have probably 30 years ago had a professorial career, perhaps written a textbook or right. two, and had tenure and retired at some point. That's right. You know, all of a sudden is is literally changing the word, world, not because of her university's endeavors, no. but because of, of hers. And a guy like Seth, yeah. You know, came along at just the right time when you could sort of disrupt right. everything. And when you think about what, what you were saying about questions being a way of um, transferring power back to the person rather yeah. than having that power, like, let me give you advice. Yeah. And I want to go into that a little bit more, too. Um, I think that really fits with where the culture is heading. Right. I don't know whether you've looked a lot into Web3. I've been thinking about it lately a I, lot. I've been living my toes in it, so not a whole lot. So what, what is it about Web3? Well, where's the connection? What I'm picking up is decentralized. Yeah. And like DAOs are really interesting, yeah. uh, decentralized yeah. autonomous organizations. Yeah. But the whole idea is Web2 has been consolidated in five or six big companies. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea behind Web3 with blockchain technology is no, right. the people will run it and the people will vote. Right. And we'll see how that goes. But cool. but I think for leaders, it's a leadership podcast. Yeah. Like power shifting. 
yeah, you know, I I got dealt a really good hand. You know, I'm overeducated, straight, white, tall, <laughs> English speaking, right. articulate. You know, so you know, privilege gets a word that gets bounced around a lot. But I I if I have a lot of that, and. What's interesting for me is to go, how do I get out of the spotlight? Like, how do I give up power? Because I do think that you have these technologies and these structures and these philosophies like Web3 and this decentralization. But I also think it is uh, a question for people who are in positions of power to say, what is the power I have? What am I holding on to? What matters to me? And what, what might I give up? Hmm. You know, we're sitting in the in the headquarters of Box of Crayons. Your and, company, by the way. Yeah. But you know, one of the one of the proudest things I've done is successfully stepped away from being the CEO hmm. of that company. Because first of all, it's quite hard for founders to step away from years <laughs> yes. their, their DNA is everywhere. They're entangled in it. And the road is littered with the corpses of attempted founder <laughs> transitions. That did not work. Did <laughs> yeah, not work. Right. I get it. And, um, but, you know, for me, giving, um, having Shannon, who is a, uh, you know, a younger woman, take control of this company and me working really hard not to screw that up and to manage that transition and to have her feel that I am fully behind her and that she, it's her company to run. That to me is a very, you know, it's a tiny thing, but it's a big thing for me around a commitment to step out of the, you know, find spaces and then invite people in and then get out of the way so that they can then hold the space themselves. I think in many ways that models what the next generation is looking for in right. a leader, particularly those of us who would have been, you know, the beneficiaries of some privilege in my life as yeah. I would have. I'm yeah. not a road scholar, but yeah, I, it's not been hard. Yeah. And to use that for the benefit of others, which actually strikes at the heart of my faith. Right. You know, that what did Jesus do? He used right. his power for the benefit of others. Exactly. But this is interesting. So your CEO. Yeah. Amazing resume. It is amazing resume. So, so where, where, because this is a fascinating story. It's so, a good story. It's tell leaders where you found her. Yeah, tell the story. So, um, I live in Toronto and, and uh, on a strip called Ronces Fails, and there's a wonderful pizza place there called Dafina. And it's the place my wife and I go most often to mm. eat. And we sit at the bar because we yeah. like talking to the people behind the bar. And um, Shannon worked behind the bar. And so we got talking to her and she is or was then doing a PhD in literature. Yeah. Oh, wow. My wife has a PhD in literature. I have a master's degree in literature. So we're like, oh, let's talk books because we all love books. <laughs> we're like, nattering away, talking about books. So we're like, we like Shannon. We like, we like her when she's behind the bar. And she was, she's, she was doing a PhD. She was working at a, in a restaurant and she was also doing some teaching. And she was also working at Coach House, which is an independent publisher here in Toronto. So she has huge work ethic and trying to make ends meet. And turns out that Coach House wins an award, the Governor General's Award. Big, oh, yeah. A big award. In, it's like a presidential yeah, kind big. of thing. And American so they're suddenly going, oh, okay, we need to publish another 200,000 copies of this book because it's going to become the best-selling book in Canada because that's mm -hmm. what happens when it wins this award. And the company was run 
poorly enough that they had to lay her off so they could afford to print the extra books. So Shannon comes up and they go in. This company is like, they're, they're great in so many things, but they're a bit of a disaster in terms of actually a well-run company. And I was six months away from the coaching habit coming out. So I said, look, I need a hand doing a little bit of marketing for the book, trying to get stuff in. Would you, are you interested? And she's like, sure. So she comes in, starts marketing. I'm like, yo, you're great at this. Now you're, you're fearless, you're robust, you're rigorous, you're smart. And um, I was like, we can do some more marketing, but do you want to try sales? And she's like, yeah, my dad's, in, he's like a classic old school sales guy. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, great. So she basically started inventing the sales team for Boxer Crane because up to then I'd done all the selling. Right. And I'm, I'm a pretty terrible salesperson. <laughs> like I get by on chutzpah and like kind of patheticness, <laughs> begging and good luck. And so she starts thinking about sales. And at a certain point, I'm like, I think she, she could be a CEO. And so um, I guess four years into, like, two years into her tenure, we started a conversation about being a CEO. She's like, what are you talking about? This is my first ever job. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I don't, what, what do you even do as a CEO? And I'm like, I'm not entirely sure what I do as a CEO. Um, so we hired a coach and Jill's job was for two years to coach us through the transition a year beforehand and a year afterwards. Smart. And um, it meant that we could just sit with what does it mean to be CEO? What does it mean not to be CEO for me? we set up some really clear key parameters around who gets to make what decisions. So we used a model from uh, Susan Scott, who wrote Fierce Conversations. Okay, yeah. And her decision tree is twig, branch, crunk, and root. Hmm. Twig decisions are decisions I'm never going to know about, never going to hear about. Like what water do we stop in the fridge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Branch decisions are ones that I might end up hearing about in the the monthly newsletter. Oh, blah blah blah, it happened. Oh, we've hired a new a new person um, at a certain level. Trunk decisions are ones where she comes to me to talk through the decision, but it's her decision to make. And root decisions are the decisions I get to make as the owner wow. of the company. Right. So you're still the owner. So I'm still the owner, and. So we went back and forth for a while trying to figure out what fits where, particularly around root and trunk, what root and trunk. And it turns out that the, in the way we run Box of Crayons, I only have two root decisions. Can I fire Shannon? Hmm. And can I sell the company? Hmm. That's it. That's all I get to decide. Because we decided really early on that we didn't want Shannon running Michael's company. We wanted Shannon running Shannon's company. So I had to give up a whole bunch of control. And <laughs> gosh, that's hard as an owner. And and most, a founder. Well, 85% is not at all because 85% I'm like, I'm so delighted. I have to do this or think about this or worry about this. I'm like, I'm free. I'm free. Uh -huh. um, and then 15%, it is really hard. Um, you know, I'm just looking at a little card we got up there around the box of crayons values. Uh -huh. And in her first year, she and the team decided to redo the box of crayons values. Ooh. Yeah, and I'm like, you mean my value? <laughs> because that's what the box of crayons values are. They're like, I just decided one day that these are going to be our five kind of key principles and we're going to operate from there. And I was like, that is so gutsy and such a good thing to do. And they, they're not, you know, like three of them are fine-tuned and one was abandoned and one was added. So it's not like oh, an over, a complete whitewash, but 
it is, it is, and that's a, that's a trunk decision. That's her coming going, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? I'm like, on the one hand, I'm crying on the inside. On the other hand, I think it's a really smart idea because it's also a way of bringing your leadership team together to shape the culture. Yeah, putting your fingerprint on it, exactly. redefining the culture. And over time, because it's now been a couple of years since she's been in this role, there are fewer and fewer trunk decisions because they increasingly are around moving to branch decisions. So she doesn't need to come and ask me about them. She still checks in on me with things like um, hiring for the senior leadership team and some money stuff and some strategy stuff, but I'm just a voice. I'm not the decider. It's a little bit in my throat. We can cut that out. Um, and, you know, that's really interesting because we talked about succession yeah. on this podcast. I've been through it 20 years founding, leading a church right. and then giving it to my successor. I'm so, I never owned the church. Yeah. You can't own a church. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that was not the same <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, except predetermined. Well, predetermined <laughs> at this point. At least that's my conviction. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you still feel ownership. Of course. If you know what I mean. Yeah, and heritage and history. and. So how are you still involved at Box of Crayons then? Well, I we have a, a quarterly board meeting. So once a quarter, Shannon will come in and report to my wife and I, who co-own the company, around what we need to know. Mm. And on a monthly basis, I will have lunch with Shannon oh. just to shoot the breeze and kind of catch up and and see if I can help. And actually, we're, we're just exploring whether we should do that a little bit more often hmm. because I think Shannon is discovering in some ways the loneliness of being the CEO, which is <laughs> like, you know, you've got to be – there's a lot of people to whom you have to appear polished and yeah. getting – you've got it together. And actually, when you're the CEO, you spend a lot of time in uncertainty and ambiguity because the big decisions come to rest with you. Yeah. And, you know, I, we're, we're just renegotiating the relationship where to see if I can be more of a peer with her now. To go, look, I know I own the company and, and technically I'm your boss, but these conversations are more like, how do we explore Box of Crayons now? Because hmm. it's really your company now. Like I couldn't come in and run this company because I don't know who anybody is or what anybody does or how this company works anymore. So it's, there's there's no chance of a coup from me. Right, <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's good. And then what? You have a sandbox you play in. You get to write. You get yeah. to. So I created a new little company called MBS.Work. And the primary reason I created it was so that I have something else to do. Right. Because I'm like, if I don't. I'll be pulled back in the box and cry. <laughs> oh, just, I mean, it's just a casual idea, but let me just suggest this. So I'm like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do that. And it, it took a certain amount of time in the wilderness to figure out who I am post box of crayons. I'm not sure if that was similar to you after you left the church. There's a lot of parallels. So yeah. Jeff, my successor and I, it's been six years. Yeah. We still pretty much meet every other week. Yeah. And um, it, I'm not telling him what to do. Yeah. I'm just listening to him. And sometimes on my good days, I ask questions. <laughs> on my bad days, I give advice. Right, right. me too. There's the advice monster. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely that. And then, yeah, I mean, this Kerry Newhoff Communications, which has become the podcast, my books, yeah. my speaking, and the courses, and yeah. soon, you know, the Art of Leadership Academy. All that stuff has been my sandbox because I, you know, I enjoy a beach, but you can only lie on a beach for so long. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, me too. And I want to do something with my time that hopefully puts a tiny dent in some small universe somewhere exactly. or help somebody. 
So yeah, it's it's a very similar thing. And I think the the arc of play, like the ability to play, mm-hmm. test this on you, makes me lo- not look back on the glory days. Right. But also not want to go and intervene and go, how come we can't paint that wall right. a different color? Right. Which would be the level of my trivial, stupid exactly. engagement. Yeah, I'd, I'd have the same. So I, I have a degree in which I'm a little, I'm fairly wired to look forward and, yes. and be interested in progress. And, you know, I did a, I did a, what I found is once I left Box of Crayons, even though I'd kind of deliberately built a brand called Box of Crayons rather than a brand called Michael, I, I, I wasn't sure what to do. And all of my ideas seemed to be plus or minus 10% box of crayons. <laughs> right, ideas. I like, ah. So I was still in the valley of box of crayons. I couldn't get out of that way of thinking. I was just shaped by that. And I did, I did an intervention with somebody called Erin Weed, who's based out in Colorado. She does something called The Dig. And over two half-day periods, um, she talks to you and in the moment builds what she calls your operating system hmm. with words. And I was so skeptical about this because I'm a pretty good facilitator, which means that I'm massively intolerant of bad facilitators. And I was like, this also sounds a bit woo-woo, and I'm pretty skeptical about that as well. So I'm like, this could be a disaster. But I'm feeling stuck. It's not super expensive. And she had two or three testimonials from people I knew and respected, and I was like, that's interesting. So, um, I sit down, uh, sit down with Erin, and she says, "So tell me, you know, start telling me your stories." So I start telling her stories, and you can see her making notes and moving things around and listening intensely. And and honestly, I was like, I think I know what my you know my operating system is going to be. It's going to be coaching, curiosity, possibilities, creativity. You know, zigging instead of zagging, all sorts of stuff that I kind of self-identify with. And um, after these these days, she says, here are, here are what I think your three words are. The first word is confidence. I was like, okay, yep, I can see that because my sense of self is an important part of who I am and also what I encourage in others, a sense mm. of, of owning your sense of distress. Yeah. Um, forward, meaning ability to look forward. And she said, your core word is power. And I was like, Man, I would not have guessed that. Now, you know, some of the stories I've told around <laughs> balloons and big yeah. food and the like and being a hippie at whatever roads, I can see now how some of that worked, but I hadn't really made those connections. And what was really powerful for me was those three words. It's kind of like in a bound he was free <laughs> from the legacy of Box of Crowns because it opened up new ways of thinking about how I wanted to serve and what impact I wanted to have and what problem I was trying to solve. And, you know, at MBS.Works now, we say we help people be a force for change. And that to me is about giving them the confidence to change their worlds, disrupt their, you know, disrupt things a little bit, claim their own worthy goals. And it was really that, that intervention through Aaron that, that was a very freeing experience for me. To, so to my surprise, because I was so sure this wasn't going to work. Incredible. But again, it's your use of power. It's yeah. really empowering rather than consolidating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to get to some of your big ideas because sure. people who listen to the end are are your world's going to get rocked. <laughs> At least your ideas rock me. So thank you, Kim. I'll just say that. But um, you are an exceptional writer. And yes. like you, I read a couple of books a week, usually yep. in prep for work, and a lot of them are skim read. Uh, but you know, I got 
through the coaching habit and I got through the new book, yeah. uh, which is called how to begin, how to begin. That's yeah. right. Great. <laughs> I'm looking at it right there on the, yeah. on the thing. And I'm like, I'm doing both one for myself and I'm probably doing how to begin with my team oh, as soon you. as it comes out. Yeah. Like I just, I loved it. And it's a reread, but you're an excellent writer. And I'm Thanks. curious, we have a lot of content creators, a yeah. lot of communicators, a lot of preachers, a lot mm -hmm. of CEOs who listen to this and a lot of young leaders. So yeah. I think this is very much in the wheelhouse of what our podcast does. Yeah. Um, but your writing is very gripping, very practical. It almost reads like a workbook. Like yeah. you can't just read this and go, oh, that's a really neat idea. You're like, you can do this now yeah. starting today. Yeah. Talk about your writing process. Well, it's fueled by a lot of reading. Like I read a lot and I love it. And I try and read broadly as well. So, you know, my wife, as well as having a PhD in literature, has a master's degree as a, a librarian. Oh, wow. and, and trained as a, a YA young adult reader. So I, I just love to read. My wife and I just spend a lot of time on lounges or beds reading together. Um, and so, and I've always been like that. So that's helpful around that. Um, secondly, I've, I've been writing a long time, you know, I've, you know, I started writing a newsletter 20 years ago. I wrote my first book 12 or 13 years ago. Um, I wrote in university journals and all sorts of stuff like that. So I've just put in quite a lot of hours at learning how to write. Um, so that's helpful. And then I have, um, I have an aversion against, um, stuff I'm going to call taboo. And taboo is an acronym for me, which is true, but bleedingly obvious. <laughs> and I just find a lot of the writing that you stumble across in business books and on LinkedIn and stuff. I'm like, oh, is it really a story about Southwest Airlines? <laughs> <laughs> Yet another one. Yeah. I'm like, Southwest Airlines are a pretty great airline. But honestly, it's like, you know, people have called my work old wine in new bottles because I, mm. you know, the ideas that I talk about staying curious longer. I mean, I didn't come up with the idea that questions were good and the idea of a process to help people find purpose in the work they do. That's not new as an idea, but trying to find a way of, of putting it in a bottle that makes people want to pick it up and look at it. That means trying to find, find the insight and then go to the next twist around the insight for me. And I do that through through metaphor. So I use a lot of metaphor and I love I love metaphor. Um but just writing and rewriting. Right. I mean that's I mean the coaching habit. I mean it, it sold a million copies and that's partly just luck, you know, because mm. selling ten thousand copies of a book is pretty amazing. It at, is at a hundred thousand copies, you've pretty much done all you can do within your control to, mm -hmm. to sell it. To sell a million copies, somehow you've had some fairy dust sprinkled on you and, and, and luck has happened. But but partly why it took off, um, the books that take off tend to be good books. And I had written five versions of that entire book before it showed up in its <laughs> short, pithy, looks like it just dashed it off in clear translucent prose. And I'm like, I was trying to I was trying to get this uh, workman, this company publishing company in in New York to buy this book, and I kept writing it, and they kept going, mm, "No, we don't quite like it yet. It's just not quite. Go and write it again." So I go, "Okay." <laughs> just re Thank you. rewrite the book again, <laughs> and they come back, "Oh no, I don't think that's right." And I'm like, "Okay, I've got another way of coming at it." And finally, I went to them 
uh, went, look, you know what? I've really got clear about what this book's about. It's seven questions. It's going to look like this. You know, it's kind of like take it or leave it because I'm not, I'm not redoing it. Right. And I'm like, I'm calling your bluff. And they, they called my bluff. And they went, okay, we don't want it. And I was like, because my, my one and only book with them, Do More Great Work, it had sold 80 or 90,000 copies. Which so is great. Which is like solid. Yeah. Um, so I was like, why wouldn't you bet on the person who's got a track record with you, who knows how to sell books a little bit? But they turned me down. And that turned out to be fantastic because I then went in and worked with a company and kind of did this hybrid self-publishing thing. And so when I wrote the version for them, I'm like, oh, this is the version I've just spent seven years practicing before I now sit down and write it. And it was a much faster, cleaner, cleaner write. Well, that is a great decision because yeah. in self-publishing, you sort of sacrifice distribution yeah. But you gain a financial incentive. And then if your book takes off, I mean, that right. kind of kind of makes the future, right? Which is incredible. And, and with the hybrid publishing, where you're effectively got somebody who's white labeling your, your mm-hmm. thing for you, you get all the you get all the distribution. So right. my books are in bookstores and airports and wherever you want to find books. It just has a different financial model. So instead of getting an advance from a publisher and then you have to earn off your advance through books you sell. I pay 50 grand upfront, roughly, and that gets me a book distributed out into the world. But I now make three to four times the royalties on the back end. <laughs> yes. So if you're willing to risk that money upfront and you think you can see a way that and bet on yourself, bet on yourself, and even better if you've got a business model that isn't just about selling books, but actually is selling other things connected to the book, you know, like like your leadership training and, right. and your keynote speeches and the like then you find a way that it'll, the money can work for you. No, then that, that's really good advice to first-time authors too. And I just spent uh, a day recently with Rick Warren, who yeah. wrote the best-selling book other than the Bible in human history, 50 million copies of The Purpose-Driven Life. That's pretty amazing. And that's in English. Yeah. So then there's the other translations, paperback. And I talked to Rick. That's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. Second only to the Bible, Bible, which I did not write. (laughs) Uh, I wrote this book and he he told the story. I think it was off mic, but he's just, he locked himself into a room for seven months. He wouldn't shave, get up at 6 a.m., work till noon, shave, shower, eat, and then (laughs) back till five o'clock for seven months. And what he said was what he did was he kept winnowing, winnowing, narrowing, narrowing. He said, until I made it as simple. Like, could I say this simpler? If it was a page, it became a paragraph. A paragraph became a sentence. A sentence became a phrase. And he said, he thinks, other than that and the grace of God, that that's one of the reasons it took off. And your books have that, but they also bounce with creativity. And there's lots of white space. And they're funny. (laughs) And they're surprising. And engaging, yeah. So thanks. That's they're not more than that. Well, I, I, I mean, the two things I think about when I'm writing. The first is, what's the least I can write that's the most useful? Hmm. So I'm always trying to write a great. I'm question. trying to write a shorter book. What so, is the least I can write that's that is most useful? And I, I use that as a design principle in my in my workshops and stuff. I design as well because preachers so, take notes. Anyway, keep yeah. Going. Because so often we want to add value and we think the way we add value is showing what we know. It's like, here's something else for you to know. Let me pour this. <laughs> and it's like pouring water into a full glass. And I think the way that we add value is giving people the space for the key idea to land and resonate and be understood and maybe be practiced. 
And it, it's, it's like asking questions and that it creates a degree of anxiety because you're not controlling the space anymore. You're giving it to other people to say, let me give you this idea and let me give you space to be with it rather than my voice filling the, the, the moment. Well, you know, I don't know, you can agree or disagree with this, Michael, but reading two of your books, getting ready for this, I'm like, I know what it is now. There is no reason to read them unless you're going to do something with them. Right. I, I really want that. Like, Is that me, what you want? Yeah. So Successful. I, well, I, I want to be a catalyst for behavior change. and Success. Um, and they, well, certainly the coaching habit has been successful. I, I love the emails I get from people. You know, some of them are managers and the like. But, you know, I get emails from parents going, I had this great conversation with my teenage kid <laughs> because I asked some of these questions. And I'm like, that is fantastic to me. So let's talk about the coaching hack. Yeah. Sold over a million copies. Yeah. And I want to get to your new book too. Yeah. But you talk about, and this is quite convicting because yeah. I've got a communication company and I'm known for giving advice. <laughs> and and yeah. you talk about the advice monster. Yeah. What is the advice monster? So it's a good question. And it's not never give advice. Okay. Because advice is a key component to human history. <laughs> yeah. Sure. How wisdom gets passed on. You know, so you're like, but yeah, don't my, drive on the wrong side of the road. Yeah, exactly. That's good advice. There's a thousand yes. things where you're like, you want to, you want the advice. But the advice monster is a way of thinking and recognizing the fact that most of us have advice giving as our default response. And as soon as somebody starts talking, your advice monster looms up in your psyche and goes, Oh, oh, you're gonna give you're gonna add some value to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait till they finish talking. You don't even have to. You don't even have to listen anymore. Just wait till you see a space, and then jump in with your ideas and opinions and solutions and tips and tricks and whatever. And there's all sorts of good reasons for that. You know, we've been rewarded all our lives through school to be the person with the answer. You know, stick up your hand, prove that you know what you're knowing. Our early career is often, you know, prove yourself, know your stuff, and you know, we've got a deep habit to kind of go look the way I the way I get rewarded. Um, and the way I have a, a behavior kind of quirk is to be the person who gives advice. But there's a deeper level, a kind of a way giving advice is a way that it kind of strokes and soothes our ego. So in the Advice Trap book, I talk about these three different types of advice monsters. There's tell it, save it, and control it. Hmm. Tell it is, I've got to be the person with the answer. Save it is, I'm going to be the person who rescues the situation and the person who makes sure everybody's safe. And control it is the person who goes, I've got to, I've got to keep my hands on the steering wheel here. <laughs> and all of those are kind of, you know, ego states where you're like, you're protecting your status, you're protecting your control, you're protecting your sense of, I'm adding value here. Right. So the it sounds easy. You know, when I say what, you know, when people go, what, what do you mean by coaching? I go, it's a behavior. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Right. This sounds pretty easy, but it's very hard. But it's, you know, there's studies that show that, that GPs on average will interrupt their patient within 12 seconds of a conversation. And I think that gives GPs a hard time because it implies that it's not everybody. <laughs> I just think everybody, everybody interrupts people all the time. And for you to stay curious a little bit longer so that when your advice comes, it's better advice and more targeted advice and more nuanced advice and more helpful advice, everybody wins from that. 
Yeah. Is there a sense in which, because so many senior leaders are listening to this and they are in the advice dispensing yeah. business. Yeah. Does that get wearying after a while? Like, is it a load you carry because you figure you have to be the person with oh. all the answers? It, so uh, another way of answering that is, it is extraordinarily freeing when you, <laughs> when you realize that you don't have to know all the answers. Actually, your job is to help your people find the answers. And I think one of the most powerful ways to rethink about your job as a leader is to say your job is to find out what the real problem is. Because once you know what the real problem is, you have people around you who can find out what the answer to that problem is. And we waste vast amounts of time and money and resource in organizations and beyond because we're so quick to try and fix the first thing that shows up. <laughs> and having the courage and the discipline and the, really the strategic nous to say, let's figure out what the real thing is we're trying to, to solve here. If you can be the person who's driving that conversation, you become invaluable in your organization. Right. Ironically, not giving the answers increases your value. It doesn't decrease right. it. And it means that when you do lay out an answer, an opinion, your list, it, it lands in a way that has more resonance and more credibility because, because you're like, okay, I don't give advice often, but when I do, this is one of these moments. So listen up. It was like, okay. <laughs> Kerry never tells me what to do and he's telling me what to do I better listen up to this um, but if you but you've you're like I think I know we've, we've had a conversation you figured out a bunch of stuff hmm. but you know it's one of the things that people get wrong about coaching which is oh never give advice never tell people what to do right. I, I don't think that's right but it's amazing how far you can get down the path <laughs> before you need to give advice so the antidote to the advice monster is the coaching habit, right? Stay Curiosity. curious Curiosity. longer. Curiosity. Yeah. And I love that phrase, stay curious longer. Right. That's one of the things I've realized about podcasting right. is when I do it well, I don't always do it well every episode. Yeah. I've stayed quiet more often. Yeah. I've listened more intently. Yeah. And sometimes there's silence and then the guest goes again. And sometimes it's just that one more question, one more question. Mm -hmm. Um, you have seven questions. I do. I don't know that we have time to cover all seven, right? But do you want to just do a few because they are yeah. penetrating? Let me tell you the, the, the best combination. Let me give you two combinations of questions. Sure. And then let me tell you what I think is the hardest question to answer. So the first and the seventh question are the bookend questions. And I think in general, they're just a, a really nice way to start and end a conversation. And I'm not talking a coaching conversation. I'm talking a conversation, just a conversation. Anything. Yeah, anything, really. So the, the kickstart question, the first question is, what's on your mind? And the power of that, Kerry, is it says to them, look, you get to choose. <laughs> this is this power thing. You get to choose what we talk about here. This is going to be your agenda. But it says, it doesn't say, so tell me everything or tell me anything. <laughs> It says, tell me what you're excited about or anxious about or overwhelmed by. You know, tell me what the thing is that we should focus this conversation on. You know, in organizations in general, I'm like, if you can't coach people in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time for this coaching malarkey. It means you've got to get into the interesting stuff fast. And what's on your mind can do that. And if people want to test this out, and often a good place to test it out is in the one-to-one 
you know, the weekly one-to-one. Yeah, I'm thinking which about emotionally weekly. excruciating <laughs> because they they so easily fall into this performative thing where the manager is like, I'm pretending to be interested in what you're telling me. And, <laughs> and the other person's like, I'm telling you everything I've done all week just to prove that I'm adding value and you shouldn't fire me and that I'm a, I'm a worthwhile contributing member of this team. And it becomes this kind of reporting out thing, which kind of lowers everybody's energy and, and excitement. But if you say in your one-to-ones, look, I know you've got a ton of stuff going on um, and I want to help as best I can. So of all the things that we can look at, tell me what's on your mind. Right. Now they're like, oh, well, here's the thing I'm really worried about. And you're like, great, let's talk about that. So what's on your mind is a strong opening thing. And then the closing question is this. You want, as a leader, your job is to make your people smarter, to build their capacity, build their confidence, build their potential. So to do that, you have to know how people learn. They don't learn when you tell stuff, tell them stuff. It's annoying and it's true. It goes in one ear, pretty much goes out the other ear. And they don't even learn when you kind of, uh, when they do stuff. I mean, they do a bit with that, but they really learn when you give them space to reflect on what just happened. Hmm. So here's a question that's really powerful. And you can ask that of your direct reports or your colleagues, you know, your peers or vendors or clients or whoever. You go at the end of a conversation, you go, hey, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? I mean, if you listen to this podcast, think back on all the stuff we've talked about so far. What was most useful or most valuable here for you so far? (laughs) And now, now you're processing this conversation. You're extracting what was most useful for you. Your neurons are firing, so you're creating neural pathways. You're more likely to remember what was that. So that's helpful. But there's a bonus. Because if you ask that question and you hear the answer, you get feedback. So now you know how you're adding value. And that's useful because sometimes you're deluded. Because sometimes you're like, <laughs> oh, I was amazing in that conversation. You know, gold yeah. nuggets fell from my lips as I spouted the wisdom of Solomon and, and they're like, and actually, no. No. But sometimes you have conversations where you're like, man, that was hard and I'm not even sure, I'm not sure if that was helpful at all. But if you go, what was most useful or most valuable or most helpful for you, you'll be surprised at what you hear. And that's going to influence what you do next time. So it's a way for you adjusting that. And then the third sneaky thing about this question is if you spend a year working with somebody and at the end of every conversation going, what was most helpful here? What was most useful? What was most valuable? When your performance appraisal comes around and they go, is it useful working with Michael? They're like, you know, every single conversation I've ever had with them has felt like it's useful (laughs) and valuable in some way. So you're helping them see this and strengthen the value of the, the relationship and you're strengthening that as well. So it's just two really simple questions to start and finish a conversation that can immediately start being the whole thing being a little more curious. Can we cover uh, one more question, which I sure. thought was genius? What's on your mind? And you can use this not yeah. just after that. And what else? Yeah. So, and what else I, I claim is the best coaching question in the world because you know, I'm mm. slightly melodramatic about well, my class. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great question. And what I love about the acronym is AWE. So it's literally an awesome question. <laughs> Here's the key insight. Their first answer is never their only answer. And it's rarely their best answer. So no matter what you ask, you can almost always go, great, and what what else? And part of what's magical about this question is they don't even hear you ask it. All they hear is you keeping the space open for them to continue to answer the question. 
So not only does it serve them because it allows them to go deeper, not only does it serve you because it allows you to get more bang for your buck from any question that you've asked, but it serves you at a more profound level, which is, and what else is the simplest way to tame your advice monster? Because if you're asking, and what else, you're not got that kind of need to tell people what to do. And what are the results you tend to see when people, because you've coached thousands, yeah. maybe yeah. tens of thousands of clients with yeah. um, with the coaching habit, yeah. what happens to the team? Um, at its best, I think at its best, the the leader feels a sense of freedom that she might not have felt before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the one of the exciting moments in in my career, we worked with Microsoft to bring this work into with them, and I ended up coaching the head of sales for Microsoft in front of three or four or five thousand people. In Las Vegas, <laughs> quite exciting. It's a bit like coaching Brene Brown. There's a certain amount of anxiety yeah. on my part, trying to don't don't make a mis- don't make a mistake here. But you know, when you talk to Jean Philippe around this, is like it was this freedom to say, I don't need to know the answers, and I get to be more fully invested in my people and to allow them to become the best versions of themselves. So work still gets done. But now it's not work and the price getting paid is people's growth. Now it's work gets done and people learn and grow as they get to do that work. And we are more focused on the work that matters. And we have a way that responsibility and accountability more easily falls to the level at which it best belongs in organizations. Hmm. Because I think a a common curse in organizations is... Uh, accountability and responsibility tends to want to keep rising up through the the hierarchy because they're like, oh, that's hard for me to take on. I'll just push it up to my boss. Yeah. And the boss goes, well, I've got the advice monster and I want to rescue everybody and <laughs> save everybody. So I'll take it on, but I'll push this up to my boss. And and organizations are at their most effective in some ways when the, the right responsibility rests at the right level. Mm. Coaching is a way of making sure that that, that work can happen. If you want to use other language, it would seem to me to improve engagement. Right. Well, Ownership. Think, yeah. Right? Well, I mean, if you're running a business, you 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 sweat over two things, strategy and culture. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And strategy is, are we doing the right work? You know, it's like, what's the, what's the thing to focus on? That's the, what's the real challenge here for you? And then culture is like, do we have the best people doing that? Mm. And if you're coaching them, you're inviting them to take responsibility, take accountability, to grow. So I really think, I mean, I'm very proud of the work with Microsoft where, where Satya Nadella is like, we're trying to move from a know-it-all to a learn-it-all culture. And our coaching program's at the heart of that because we're like, we're creating a culture shift for them. So let's talk about your new book, yes, which is really interesting. So it is about beginning. Yeah, it is about starting. Yeah, it is a take on worthy goals. Yeah, and um, I want to ask because you know you and I are both in our fifties, yeah. if I'm right. Yeah, and is goal setting because you're kind of reinventing yourself right now. Yeah, I'm doing that. <laughs> um, is goal setting different in your twenties? Because I talk to so many young leaders and they're like, I don't even know what to do. I don't yeah. know. I want to make a difference in the world, but I don't know where to begin. Yeah, uh, which enter your book? Uh, well, I this book is seeming to find two audiences. Um, one is definitely people who are in that kind of midlife fifties thing, where 
um, you know, the the New York Times columnist David Brooks talks about the second mountain. Yeah. And they're like, okay, the first mountain is your career and kind of getting the sort of rewards that a good career can bring you. But at a certain point, you're like, okay, I've done that. Now, how do I do something that's that's legacy and yeah. impact and service? And there's a lot of people who are picking up this book who are in that space and going, this is really speaking to me because I'm trying to figure out. Like, I'm 55. I've got 20 good years left. I don't want to retire. I don't want to sit on a beach. Yeah. I don't want to do something that matters. But I also think there's this this younger group of people who are in their kind of early 20s often who are, you know, they're on light with frustration about how us old people are doing things. <laughs> um, they have a degree of energy and naivety that is really powerful. And but they're but they're they're a bit kind of all over the place in terms of trying to find their focus around that. And I'm not all of them because some people are extraordinary, but you know, I think about my nieces and nephews, they're like they're they're still searching a little bit. And, and way more options. Like, you know, I, you and I, it was like, I decided at eight, I wanted to be a lawyer. Right. And there were five things on the menu. Right. I didn't have the internet. Yeah. So I think, I think people, you're right, younger people had this permission to be skeptical about the, 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 the 40 year career, skeptical about, you know, the organizational man and the organizational life and kind of yeah. living that. Um, you know, they, we talked for years about how millennials are like, I'm looking for purpose-driven companies. But I think you look at Gen Z's and they're like, I'm not sure I'm looking for a company. I think I'm looking to make a, an impact in this world. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, how old are your kids? Uh, one will be, well, by the time this airs, 30 and 26. Right. So they mm -hmm. might be in that space as well where they're yeah. kind of like searching a little bit for going, well, what's my... I mean, where are they in terms of figuring out what to do with their lives? So, yeah, one of them actually studied software engineering mm -hmm. and he's doing really well. But like, again, he's probably changed companies three or four times. Right. It's a job offer every day, almost. <laughs> it just, if you want a job, go into software engineering. Yeah, yeah. And then my other son, who now works with me, was yeah. in accounting. And he was at one of the big five here in downtown yeah. Toronto in a bank tower yeah. doing the the hustle on the way to partner, you know, yeah. starting at the bottom of the food chain. And after a year, he's like, dad, this life is not for me. Yeah. And I needed a CFO. Our company was growing at the time. And I'm like, well, Great. I can afford you. So uh, <laughs> perfect. two and a half years later, yeah. we're still working together. I thought it would be six months and it's been fantastic. Oh, congratulations. Been great. Thank that's, you. Yeah. That's, uh... But again, I don't know whether his life's ambition is to work with his dad yeah. for the next 20 years, you know? No, so, but there's a, there's a way that there's a, I mean, it's a little, I mean, Shannon is in her thirties when she came to work at Boxer Crayons, but it's the same thing where you're like, let's see if we can make this work. Yeah. And that's not necessarily mean you have to pay your dues to kind of have impact and influence in the way you can. Totally. It's like, take it because you, you've got a quick spot, go for it. And I, you know, I look at my nieces and nephews who are younger than your kids. They're in their late teens and early twenties. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're a little more in that searching space, but I'm so excited to see what, what becomes of them. Well, and they will reinvent themselves. Like you and I yeah. reinvented ourselves yeah. a few times and yeah. they, they will do that even more. Yeah. Right. So you talk about goals being thrilling, important, and daunting. Mm. Can you explain why you picked those three adjectives? Yeah. So in the same way that I started to, rethink about coaching because I was kind of irritated about the way coaching was being taught. And I was just like, this is terrible. 
I looked at the way goals are being taught, and I realized I didn't really think much of that. I mean, smart goals, which everybody's heard of. Strategic, whatever, yeah. measurable. Exactly. Whatever, 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 whatever. They're, they're mostly about containing ambition, tidying things up and making them neat. And I'm like, it's true. Aren't you, isn't, what, if, what if you've got the wrong goal? Aren't you, it's like <laughs> ISO 900. You're like, I've, I've got a high quality thing that's wrong. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want that. I want people to claim ambition for themselves and for the world. I want them to have permission to be ambitious for what they want. But I don't want it just to be about them. I want them to serve the world. I want them wow. to give more to the world than they take, which is a phrase I borrowed from Jackson Novogratz. Yeah. And so I was like, so what makes for that? And so the first things I got were thrilling and important because that's the tension between the internal motivation, thrilling, lights you up, gets you excited, and acts as a kind of counter to obligation. Oh, I should be doing this. Oh, I should be doing that. Oh, it's expected that I do this now. But then important is give more to the world than it takes, serve a bigger picture, make a connection to the strategy. It gets you out of yourself. And I think it's really interesting to try and find the space, the tension between those two poles. And then daunting, I'm like, I want you to grow. Hmm. You know, when I, when I wrote the first draft of this book, I wrote 80 pages and I sent it to some friends. And my friend Misha, who lives here in Toronto, after two days, he rang me up and went, look, I'm 40 pages into your book. I have no idea what it's about. It's terrible. <laughs> I was like, oh, that would hurt more if it wasn't true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I'm picking through the rubble of this first draft, one of the phrases that I, I rescued and I really loved was, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. Hmm. And I'm like, I want people to grow. I want people to move through their S-curves, you know, that kind of theories of adult development, which is like you move through stages and then you leap to the next stage. I'm like, how do I get people to the next stage? And that's the daunting piece, which is like, how do you choose something where you're like, I know how to start this, but I don't totally know how to finish it. <laughs> you know, I'm excited about it, but I'm slightly kind of scared because I can't quite see how the story plays out. And I think if you can play with your dial so you get as a, a goal that is in the right balance as thrilling and as important and as daunting as it can be what you're creating is internal motivation and external motivation and an engine of growth that gives you the best chance to keep going on the goal when it gets hard you know daunting is the word that really caught me yeah. because at 56 um it's you've figured out a lot of stuff, right. not everything, right. but you know, you could kind of coast, you could right. say I've, I've mastered this, or at least exactly. I know how to do it. Exactly. And we're in some territory largely because of the, you know, yeah. input of my team where it's daunting. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know whether it's going to work. <laughs> and I don't know whether yeah. I can figure all of this out. Yeah. And part of that is terrifying. And yeah. some of that is exciting. Exactly. And I think that's a really interesting place to go because you're right. In in I'm 53, I think. Yeah. And I'm like, there's a bunch of stuff that I can I know how to do well enough now. And it would stroke my ego and it'd probably earn me some money and I, you know, win a tin badge or something. Um, but you know, in the end of the book, I, I quote from a poem by Rilke, um, The Man Watching is the English translation. And I've loved this this phrase, which is you know, he. I love it so much I can't remember. 
I'll, I'll misquote it slightly. I remember reading that in the yeah. book. But it was like, um, his goal is not to win, but to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. And that to me is just a miraculous piece of writing. Deeply <laughs> defeated by ever greater things. I'm like, what if you keep stepping out to the edge of who you are so that, you know, you might be defeated in the moment, but, um, I mean, the, the the body of the poem is actually telling the story about Jacob wrestling with the angel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's powerful about it for me is, it, it, and I'm getting shivers up my spine as I talk about That's it, is he goes, the the angel doesn't wrestle with anybody. You have to you have to be up to something extraordinary for the angel to choose to engage with you. <laughs> and you will always lose when you're wrestling with an angel. Nobody, nobody <laughs> One touch of the hip and yeah. it's over, man. That's right. Mm -hmm. But but you you leave there with the thumbprints of the angel on you, and the angel and you've and you've won because you've wrestled with the angel and you've been defeated by the angel. But you, you, the thing has been important enough that that's happened, and that to me is like, like I'm not a religious person, yeah, but yeah. boy, I get lit up by that. that no, that like me as a religious that, person. Yeah, yeah. That totally, like, yeah, you're right, and and there is such a cruise control. Or I wonder, wonder if the temptation for people in their twenties, and you know, people correct me if I'm wrong, who are listening is the shortcut to success. In other words, I want it now. Yeah. And I'm not saying everybody has to pay their dues, but yeah. there's this idea that we live in this instant culture. And yeah. one of the things you talk about in the book is false starts. Yeah. That, you know, I had some false starts in my life. You probably had some false starts. So many, so many false starts. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Talk about false starts. Yeah. I I think often when you're taking on a worthy goal, it's worth acknowledging that it's it's often not the first time you're taking it on. You've often coming back to it. I mean, it's like, you know, New Year's resolutions is the most obvious kind of iteration of that where you're like, yep, 2022. <laughs> and once again, I resolve to X and Y. I'm going to lose that weight. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. Yeah. And it's just worthwhile and going, you know, how have I, what have I done here before? And what can I learn from that? And how do I give myself permission to say, look, I've, I've, I've tried to do this a few times and it hasn't worked. What do I need to figure out so that I can more fully commit to, to what's ahead of me? So it's just, an, it's just an auditing of your history so that you're less naive about what it means to take on this worthy goal. And I guess, too, it's a little bit like separating the wheat from the chaff to yeah. another biblical metaphor where um, there's probably a part of you that you leave behind, right? but a part of you that keeps going. In other words, your power thing, yeah, right? Yeah. So balloons, being <laughs> exactly. food, right? But now you're in a place where yeah. you, you're helping millions of leaders right. figure out, here's how you can empower the people that you work with. Right. So the balloons are gone. Yeah. And the lawsuits are gone. Exactly. But but the, the power focus right. remains. Exactly. So... Um, you know that saying, wisdom enters through the wound? Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's really powerful. And I haven't heard that. That's good. It, it is good. It's that kind of that lesson. And the other the other metaphor that almost works but doesn't quite is that scar tissue is the strongest tissue in the human body. Turns out it isn't. <laughs> but it's a nice but story. But it'd be awesome if it It's always darkest before the dawn. <laughs> Apparently that's not true either. I'm like, come on. Oh, oh, no. Tell me that's true. Yeah, no, exactly. it's not. Yeah. But this idea that, you know, uh, you know, we collect our scars and we show our scars and we're like, you know, I've got scars and I've learned from them. Um, 
And I think that's part of what you're doing with the false starts, which is like, it's nothing to, there's, there's no shame here. There's a way of going, yep, that's me. And now I'm taking another crack at this. What do I need to know about that? So one of the things you talk about in the book, and I want to get it right, are the prizes of the status quo. Yeah. And a lot of leaders struggle with the status quo. And particularly sure. now, in yeah, a, you know, our third year yeah. of crisis, yeah. where we can't even see tomorrow, let yeah. alone the future. Yeah. It's like, I guess I'll just go back to yesterday, because yesterday seems familiar. Do you know the, the work by Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, Immunity to Change? I do not. Uh, it's a, it's a, it is a powerful, if slightly overwritten <laughs> change process. And the metaphor at the heart of their process is we try and make progress with our foot on the accelerator and discover that we have our foot on the brake. Wow. And until you understand why you've got your foot on the brake, it's hard for you to take on some of these worthy goals, some of these, these kind of important challenges. And this is me in some ways trying to come at that in a different way. Ron Heifetz, another leadership writer, talked about this as well. When you're taking on a worthy goal, it involves you saying yes to something and no to something. It's one of the questions from the, the coaching habit as well. And we don't often weigh up the prizes and punishments of the choices that we're making. So after you've gone through the process of defining a worthy goal, you're at a crossroads mm -hmm. and you can go one of two ways. You can either not do it or you can do it. And both are valid choices and both are worth examining. So when you look at, you know, you've, you've come up with this worthy goal. It's like, it's thrilling. It's important and daunting. And one of your choices to walk away from that. Yes. And there are prizes and punishments to that decision. There are prizes to embracing the status quo. And they're mostly around safety and comfort and familiarity and not threatening your status and not disrupting expectations of others and expectations of yourself and not disrupting relationships and not disappointing people. That's all the benefit you get of not taking this on, hmm. but at a cost. And the cost is what you might achieve by doing this worthy goal and who you might become by doing this worthy goal. But it's really worth looking at going, do, do, does the, the punishment outweigh the prizes? You know, is the is the the comfort I feel less than the the sadness I would feel about not taking this on? And sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. You need to know that. And then you want to ask in a similar but different way, imagine you were fully committed to this worthy goal. You mm -hmm. went for it. You know, push your chips into the, the center of the whatever. What are the prizes and punishments of that? Well, the prizes are obvious. Like you, you have the impact you're dreaming of. You see this new sense of you show up and you're like, this is the better version of me for taking this on. But if you take on a worthy goal, there's risk. There's risk to reputation and money and time and sunk cost and relationships. How does that balance out? Do the yeah. prizes outweigh the, the punishments? And I think often we come up with a worthy goal and we're like, that's it. I'm, I'm off. <laughs> and you haven't really sat with the, the consequences of what it means to commit. And that's what this understanding that we're actually far more committed to the status quo than we realize. And that's what often pulls us back from taking on our worthy goals. Hmm. No, that's a, that's a good reminder. There are prizes yeah. with the status quo. Yeah. And, uh, but, but often when you look back, I always think unimplemented change can become regret pretty easily. Yeah. I had a moment to, you know, fill in the blank. Um, 
Self-limiting beliefs are part of our struggle. Mm. So you say you have a persistent story in your head, Michael, right. that you're a high-performing, lucky amateur. Yeah. I, I can say I relate. Yeah. Um, what do stories like that do to us and to our goals? Well, I think they offer a doorway to step away from the best version of ourselves and to give us a way to wriggle, wriggle out of mm. that. I'm like, you know, if I t think of me, I'm like, I really wanted this thing to go well, but you know, the truth is I'm a bit of a lucky amateur. So it's a miracle I got here in the first place. The fact that I didn't get it over the line or do this or do that. Well, you know, that's just the nature. I already did better than yeah, I thought I, already I would. Better than I did. And you know, you know, the fact that I'm not destitute in a gutter is, is already a step ahead of where mm -hmm. I thought I'd end up. So it's all a bit of a, you know, a bit of a miracle. So it's very helpful. And I'm certainly not the first to say this, to start hearing what you say to yourself. Because, yeah. you know, as many people have said, we're, we're pretty horrible to ourselves in a yeah. way that we'd never be that way with other people. I love the work of, um, I think his name is Rick Carson. It's called um, Aiming Your Gremlin. Do you know this? No, book? I don't. No. So he manifests the inner voice, the critical inner voice of the gremlin. And it's like, you've got to start noticing it. And then he suggests you draw it because when you, draw it. when you, when you embody it, it starts losing its power. When you externalize it, you can see it and you can notice it and you control it and you can dampen it a little bit. It's kind of parallel in some ways to the advice monster, I guess. And, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, I, 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 it made me think a little bit of Stephen Pressfield, the resistance. Yeah. Have you read that? I that's an yeah. incredible yeah. book. Yeah. Like, Almost like, you know, as a, as a Christian, as a person of faith, it parallels a lot of the good and evil dialogue, you sure. know, historic Christianity, which is, which is fascinating. But <laughs> I can just see that, you know, the, the devil and the angel. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, the, and the whole, the, the, the whispering of that, yeah, you, give, you can give it up. Yeah, just step away from it. You don't need to take this on. <laughs> it is. It is the best. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? It really is. So. I love how you give a couple of examples, yeah. and I want to zone in on one. But one of the things I thought was really helpful was the framing of the goal. Right. So you start with a crappy first draft. Yeah. Can we talk about the podcast? Yeah. So you wanted to become a podcaster because right. I think this makes it so concrete. You went through three or four drafts of that yeah. goal. Um, this, if if you're thinking yeah. about a goal, yeah. reader, listener, um, leader, this will really help get clear. Because the first draft sounds like every goal I've ever written. Right. I'm like, <laughs> I want to have a really successful podcast. It's kind right. of roughly what my first goal was. And I'm like, that's not that thrilling or important. And it's a bit daunting. And I'm like, you know, there's something around podcasting I want to do, but this is a pretty, pretty poor start. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And the truth is, like, I've started and run five podcasts before, some of them for a short period, some of them for long periods. So, I was like, so I'm not that interested in the podcast itself. Right. Um, because I know technically how to run a podcast. So I, there's no thrillingness to me in setting up microphones and finding people to interview. Yeah. And um, I went through iterations and I'm like, I want it to be a, a professional podcast. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And then I'm like, I don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> I'm like, it sounds good, but what is, you know, blah. And in the end, the the goal, and as you say in the book, I keep working this. I'm showing my working as yeah, yeah. this. In the end, I think the goal says something like, I want to have a podcast in the top 3% of podcasts, which is like 10,000 downloads per episode. Yeah. 
really hard to get there. I mean, obviously, extremely percent. Yeah. And that, to me, suddenly turned up the heat. Wow. <laughs> because now I'm like, okay, I have to, top 3% is a uh, an articulation of what professional really means. Because now I have to have a way this is produced in a way that sounds top quality audio, and it has to have a, a, a style and a feel of its own. And I've, I've got to think about marketing because it, you're lucky if your, your show grows organically to be 10,000 downloads. So how do I get people to find this? How do I buy advertising? How do I think about getting out in the world? How do I think about partnerships? How do I think about distribution? And um, it set a challenge for me around this podcast which I've, which I have failed utterly at. So I, okay, I have a podcast called Two Pages with MBS. It's up to about uh, on a good day a thousand downloads per episode. Okay, so I'm like, okay, it's more than it was when it started, but much less than ten thousand, which was my target. You know, in the next two weeks, <laughs> so that's not going to happen. But I'm like, it still feels like a, a good, worthy goal for me. So when when my my work is done around promoting how to begin. One of my things for next year is like, all right, now I've got a master distribution for podcasts yeah. and really get, build an audience in a way that I haven't managed to do just yet. Um, but it, it it went from being, I'm like, I'm sure there's something here around podcasting yeah. to, yeah, whatever, this is not motivating, <laughs> to right. I found the right language by asking myself what would make it thrilling, what would make it important, what would make it daunting. And tinkering with it till it, it felt it's like writing books the fourth draft is going to be better than the first draft yeah so i would highly recommend that like i said uh how to begin that's something i'm going to reread and uh, in all likelihood will be a 2022 team study for yeah. our team i thought Thank it was you. just so good and I highly recommend it and those of you who are regular listeners know i don't say that every episode <laughs> so you know it takes a bar to get through here, but yeah. like, uh, oh, we're going to do a team study. That's that's a handful of books every yeah, year. Thanks. I want to go back to the coaching because yeah. you talk about momentum here with the podcast, right? And yeah. welcome to podcasters world. Right. Like, you know, people are like, how do you get 20 million downloads? I'm like, lucky amateur. Like that right. is my narrative. And right. a lot of it, I did catch a few breaks and yeah. there was some strategy behind it. But the coaching habit. Yeah. sells a million copies yeah. you get rejected by publishers yeah you publish it in this hybrid model where yeah. you get distribution but you have to front all the money yeah what were some of the tipping points to a million copies um there well first of all it's like i think i wrote a a, a book that has a, a clean art to it right so it kind of lives up to my aspiration about the shortest book i can you know, there's so much left on the floor with that book. So that helps. Hmm. Um, secondly, I made a commitment to market the book for a year. Oh, wow. So when you're caught in the normal publishing swirl, it's like all about the launch and the kind of the six weeks following that. And after that, your publisher gets pretty disinterested in you. Yeah, they're like, kind of like, yeah, see ya. Yeah. You're, 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 you're now back, back catalog. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're interested in other books now. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm, what's nice about the hybrid model is like, it's clear that I'm responsible for the marketing of this. Right. So I just went, all right, I'm going to be on two podcasts a week for a year. And then I expanded that for another, I think almost another year. So I was on a lot of podcasts. And so I just had a, 
uh, determination to keep going. Look, it's a long game that that works. You know, years ago, I had dinner with uh, a guy called David Allen who wrote. Oh yeah, Park getting Adventure. things done. Yeah, yeah. And he and I had somehow connected. Actually, this is part of the Whitspath thing. The very very first book I wrote uh, was called "Get Unstuck and Get Going on Stuff That Matters." And I'm like, okay. Yeah, I'm even less well known than I am now. What what do people do when they write a book? Well, they try and get a famous person to blurb their book. So I'm in my book shelf. And at the time I did everything alphabetically. So getting things done was basically the first Alan. book, top left hand corner. So I'm like, okay, I haven't even read this book, but I've heard it's good. So I looked up David Allen on the on the internet and it had a phone number. So I'm like, okay, I'll just call his secretary and see if I can send him a copy. And so I dial this number and before it even rings, it gets picked up and it's like, hello, David Allen here. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't have a pitch. I didn't have anything. I was so I, I was so taken aback. But I, I ended up sending him the book and he wrote a nice blurb for it. And then we kind of connected around that. So he came up and we had dinner. And he told me that part of the success of getting things done was it sold more copies year on year. Yeah. So I was like, that is a great five-year goal is to sell more copies in the fifth year than I did in the fourth year, than I did in the third year, than I did in the second year. So having the long game um, in my mind was a key part of it. Other things are like I, I bought distribution in airports. So to get your book into an airport cost you money. Yep. But actually part of what I was really thinking about is I run a training company. I teach managers and leaders how to be more coach-like. The real win here is selling programs at ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars to organizations. And actually, as much as I was trying to get the book out into the world, really I wanted to get the book in the hands of people who right bought people. those people. Because I'm like, yeah. this book is a success if I sell a hundred copies to the right hundred people, because they will bring in as they've done, you know, seven figures into box of crayons over the years because of people going, I read the book, do you guys do training? Right. And so part of it is also just remembering how do I get this book into those people's hands? So that's why, first of all, when I wrote The Coaching Habit, I, I wrote it for a very specific person. I'm like, you're a busy VP, you fly a lot, you walk into the airport bookstore, you're looking for an interesting read, you pick it up, you flick through it, and it's like it's got quite a lot of white space, so it looks friendly to read. It looks like it solves a problem you have. You want to get more out of your team. You just don't know how to do it. And you can sit down and you can read this book on your two-and-a-half-hour flight. That's who I wrote the book. Checked all the boxes. Yeah, and I'm like, because you will be the person who buys the programs. And so a big part of it was around buying the programs. And after that, Kerry, there's some degree of just – unknown fairy dust that happens that takes off and word of mouth and people buy for their teams and stuff now. So now, and, and success breeds success so that on Amazon it, it's constantly being recommended as a book because it's been bought so often. So it's, it's, it, you know, once it helps to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I talked to Gary Chapman who wrote the five love languages, yeah, yeah. one of the best selling yeah. books. And uh, we were speaking at the same event he said something very similar. It didn't do that well out of the gate, but every year for 25 years, it sold better than the, the past year. Yeah. And he can no longer explain it. It's like a <laughs> snowball running down a hill, right? right? It just kind of takes yeah. off. There's, there's a way that you can retrospectively make it sound like I had this planned all the, all the time. <laughs> and look, if people are really interested in book marketing, I wrote a, a long 7,000 word article called 
how I sold 180,000 copies of my book and doubled my revenue or something like that. Oh, great. And it's, um, it's on a website called growthlab.com run by a guy called Ramit Seti. Oh, you know, and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, and, um, and I just wrote it as a free resource for people to say, here's all the things I tried. Here's how much it cost me. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. So if you want to kind of deeper dive into this, I just lay out everything I tried six years ago. And some of it's still relevant. Some of it's probably a bit dated. We, if we can find it, we'll link to yeah. it in the show notes. That would yeah. be great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question for you. What is one question that nobody ever asks you that you wish someone would ask you? Well, I've got some questions that nobody ever asked me, which I'm not sure I want people to ask. <laughs> yeah, please don't ask yeah. me that, officer. But, yeah. but here a question that I used in my mastermind group recently, which was a, a resonant question, which is, what are you longing for? What are you longing for? Mm, that's a hard question. <laughs> Who came up with that question? <laughs> um, I, I am longing for a greater sense of freedom from the work that I do. Hmm. Like I am, I love my work and I'm very invested in it. And I have a little too much of my identity tied up in it. And I think back to when I was, you know, a teenager and what it meant just to have a casual plane down the beach in Australia, hanging out where there was a sense of carefreeness, which I don't feel I have anymore. And that's what I'm looking for, a sense of carefreeness. Hmm. And what else? <laughs> and a good question. I got nothing else. <laughs> You've plumbed the depth of my soul. I've plumbed the depth of your yeah, soul. Yeah. That's interesting, you know, because you can't help but think about your own experience. Yeah. And, oh, boy's session for the counselor. I think that teenager was looking for something else. Right. I, I think I feel more carefree now than I did as a kid. Oh. Which probably means I need some more therapy. I, I don't or know. you don't need therapy. Or I don't need yeah, therapy. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's great. You know, it's, uh, you know, I've had enough success. So yeah, it's an interesting question, which is like, maybe related, which is like, so what does success mean now to you? Yeah. Because I'm I'm less interested than I've ever been around some of the kind of the external accolades around, you know, am I on this list or whatever? Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have to think too hard about money anymore, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so now what, what does success mean to me? It's a great question. And I'm not sure I have a, I quite have a good answer for that yet. Hmm. It's worth pursuing. Yeah. Definitely worth pursuing. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, this is incredible. Thank you. Thank you. What a rich, meaningful, yeah, wonderfully meandering conversation. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you know, it wasn't that meandering because you're such a great host and you've been so thoughtful about reading the books and preparing for it. And, you know, I was saying to you before you hit the record button, I had a, a, another podcast interview today, which was the polar opposite of this experience where the person didn't really know who I was, hadn't read any of my work, kind of talked 70% of the interview herself. Mm. And so it's such a delight to have this conversation with you. So thank you. It was a delightful conversation. Yeah. And five episodes in, I've told the story more than once. I was listening to my podcast, episode five, with my wife. And I said, any tips? She goes, you talk too much. 
And so I'm like, I have this invisible script over yeah, every right. interview and some interviews I yeah. get it right, but it's like, shut up, yeah. just be quiet. Let the guests do the work. Yeah. And, uh, you brought a lot of value and I would just encourage leaders stay curious longer. So people are going to want to get, um, how to begin. Yeah. They're going to want to find you online. Where can they discover you? Yeah. Um, if you want to go straight to the how to begin book, howtobegin.com is a nice and easy URL. And if you want more about me in general, uh, my website is mbs.works. Okay. And if you're interested in the kind of corporate training offer of Box of Crayons, boxofcrayons.com. Excellent. We'll link to everything. Thank MBS, you. Michael Bungay Stanier, thank you Karen. so much. It's been a delight. Really Thanks. appreciate yeah. it. Well, that was a fun and stimulating and challenging and warm interview. Really, really appreciate Michael, and I'm glad we got to know each other. So uh, if you want transcripts, you can find everything at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 474. Also got some show notes with some insights, some things you can share on social. Would love to have you visit the website. I find I don't always go over to a website after I listen to a podcast. And if that's your story, you're missing out. Man, we got a lot of stuff there for free for leaders and uh, also some resources that I think can help you move the needle this year. Want to thank our partners for this week's episode, ProMedia Fire. You can book your free social media management consultation today simply by going to promediafire.com slash growth. And by Belay, get their free resource, Three Tips for Setting Personal Goals as a Busy Leader by texting CAREY to 55123. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. Next time, we've got Dave Hollis coming up. He is a New York Times bestselling author. And we talk about well, his time at Disney, we spent a lot of time there. Uh, also talks about the end of his marriage to Rachel Hollis, the pain of a public divorce, dealing with crisis and finding resilience. He was an open book. And here's an excerpt. Felt uh, like the wind was being knocked out of me. Hey, uh, Rachel asked a, a serious but simple question. Do you believe that you can be the man that God intended you to be married to me? And it's wow. uh, it began a quick... Um, a quick end to our marriage. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a very short amount of time that we ended up really diving into and spending time in the conversation. But uh, by the end of May, we had a conversation about this now being the end of us as a married couple and transitioning into something new. And what I didn't appreciate in, you know, December of 19, as I'm saying, I'm having my best year ever was that that best would come in, uh, in part, not, not even in part, it would come not in spite of, but because of the way that you react to the hardest things that you have to experience. That's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, we've got Jenny Allen and Voskamp is going to join us. Philip Yancey, man, that was a powerful interview. Bob Goff, uh, Scott Miller and Mark Miller, no relation. And uh, a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. Uh, I'm very excited for what's ahead. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And I have other shows you can subscribe to. We have a brand new Art of Leadership podcast network. And we've got a bunch of podcasts that are now part of this network. This uh, podcast is the flagship podcast on the Art of Leadership Network. But also joining us are Jenny Katrin, Brad Lominick, Chris Cook, Jeff Henderson, Shane Benson, David Farmer, Kevin Jennings, Exponential, and Sean Morgan. And you can find them all at theartofleadershipnetwork.com. Or you can simply search The Art of Leadership Network wherever you listen to your podcasts. And, uh, well, there's a lot more coming on The Art of Leadership. Um, stay tuned for that. I'm very excited to share it with you. In the meantime, 
Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.